Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize them, do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, obviously, there has been lots and lots of concern and talk about the use of disinformation and trolls and related things uh, on the internet over uh, the past couple of years, or maybe longer than that. Uh, we've already done a few podcasts touching on the subject uh, and approaching it from a variety of different angles with a variety of different experts. But this is also a fairly big and complex issue, and it's one that doesn't necessarily lend itself to particularly easy solutions, which is why I think it's so helpful to have um, a bunch of these discussions and hash out a variety of thoughts around what's happening, what the real problems are, and what, if anything, can actually be done about them. Uh, Rene DeResta has been paying attention to the issue of disinformation online longer than most people, I think, uh, after becoming quite reasonably uh, obsessed with how disinformation spread years back in researching the issue of vaccines and how people talk about vaccines. Uh, Since then, she's continued to work on the issue in a variety of different ways, uh, tracking disinformation on various internet platforms, publishing reports on how disinformation spreads, and advising both Congress and the Obama administration on internet disinformation. Uh, Last fall, there was a fantastic New York Times profile of DeResta that is well worth reading. Uh, We'll link to it in the show notes. And she has continually pushed vocally for the various internet platforms to do a better job of responding to and dealing with the problems of disinformation. Uh, DeResta and I started talking a few weeks back when we both read the Robert Mueller indictment of various Russian conspirators in trying to influence U.S. elections, where it felt like we interpreted parts of the indictment in ways that felt kind of the opposite. Uh, She put up a tweet pointing out that Facebook still was unwilling to hold itself accountable for how the Russians had used the platform to impact the election, while I pointed out the level of deception used by the Russians to hide the fact that they were Russian propagandists from Facebook. This led to a a bit of a discussion on Twitter, um, but it wasn't necessarily easy to have such a discussion on Twitter. Uh, Even with the now 280 characters of space, it's (laughs) tough to have a, a really nuanced discussion on that particular platform, and I think this is an issue that actually requires a more nuanced discussion than sort of a, a you know, quick, pithy sound bites. Um, I have, uh, for a long time, had tremendous respect for the work that Teresa has done, and, and I recognize that this, as I said earlier, is a complex issue with, with lots of nuance, so I thought that a much better format to dig into that nuance would be on a podcast. And uh, Deresta kindly agreed to come on to our podcast, and so here we are. Uh, Renee, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, and so... To some extent, you know, we set up this discussion in a manner where I, I, it, it felt like we sort of disagreed with each other, though I'm not even sure that's really true. I think we may disagree in, you know, in a small degree, but on important sort of, you know, points. So actually, you know, we're, we're sort of coming out with slightly different perspectives. So let's start with a, kind of a, a, a simple question that I think can lead to a, a more in-depth discussion, which is, you know, well, maybe not a simple question, but... <laughs> What what would you really like to see out of the platforms? So I think um, we're at a point where I think most people would agree that this has largely become the new public square or, or kind of a de facto public square where people go to communicate with each other uh, in in ways that used to be you know, done a little bit more in person now. A lot of these kind of conversations are happening online. Political discussions happen online. There have always been message boards, but they're sort of a critical mass on a very small handful uh, of platforms. And as a result, we've basically created um, kind of captive audiences, or mm-hmm. there's always a standing audience ready to receive a message at any given time. I think that this is unique. Uh, it's never really, we've never really had anyone can send a message to a phenomenal amount, phenomenal numbers of people, um, relatively effortlessly for relatively small amounts of money uh, today, and that mm-hmm. I think is a very interesting position to be in. So I see, over the last few years, kind of a, an erosion 
um, in public discourse and in the way that we talk about things and the kinds of things that spread um, into a place where we have a lot of uh, overt manipulation, a lot of manufactured consensus, a lot of um, inauthentic actors participating as if they were real people uh, in, mm -hmm. in kind of discourse. And I'm very interested in what this does to notions of trust, you know, as, as we become more and more aware that the people that we're speaking to online are possibly not even real right. uh, or, who, or, or accurately like what, what they're representing themselves as. Um, I see a environment we've created where we're asking people to be skeptical all the time. Check your source, check your source, check your source, check your source. I think that there is some degree of, of healthy source checking and then there's mm -hmm. where we seem to be headed, which is um, the ease at which we can manipulate audio and video over the next several years, right? right? Creating a constant environment in which the basic um, currency that lets us get through our day, the assumption that what we're seeing is real, is kind of continually eroded. Um, I see an environment in which um, very, very small, determined groups of people um, can amplify a message to a rather extraordinary degree. Um, and both the good, uh, the ways that that can be used very positively, and then the ways that that can be deeply destructive mm -hmm. um, as we think about what consensus means, where it comes from, um, whether we're getting an accurate sense of the number of people who hold a particular opinion, uh, and how that should influence policymaking going forward. I think that there's just a lot of fundamental shifts in the way that we have conversations. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think we agree 100% <laughs> on that. The, the, the question is, you know, so then you asked what, also right? what should the platforms do? I'm sorry, I left that. Yeah, part. no, that's, that's okay. No, <laughs> no, no. Bogged down I mean, in the link, the foundation. It's, <laughs> it's good to set that framework because I think you know it, it was probably the wrong question to start with because I'm just kind of asking what is the solution when we haven't sort of established the problem. So I think it's it's you're making a really good point, sort of establishing what is the issue, right? And so then let's take it to the next step. So what do we do about it? So I think that the platforms are. The, they provide the framework, they have the most information, they understand the problem better than anybody else in some ways, and not at all in others as we've seen. Uh, yeah. But in terms of the data sets to actually understand to what extent is this significant, this is something that there's been a ton of back and forth on that. How much impact did this have? Not in terms of the election. I think that's actually a very, you know, um, it's a conversation that people like to have in partisan circles, but I think that that's actually the wrong question to be asking. I think it's fundamentally, as we look at the propagation of content, the dissemination of content, we're really bad at understanding the absorption, um, what, mm -hmm. the, what the absorption is, how people are incorporating what they're seeing. Um, I think that only the platforms have access to really understanding how deeply this is shaping our discourse. So I guess what I've been hoping for is a little bit more transparency on that front. Uh, a little bit more accountability. So I think accountability in, in the sense that these are conversations that are happening in spaces that they own and that they control. Um, I, I understand that they are spaces that are created to give people the right to express themselves, but ultimately um, the setting of norms in these kind of virtual social spaces is really the purview of the companies. Mm -hmm. um, so in this case, I would be asking for a little bit in the way of accountability. So, so. And what does accountability mean in that context? I, I think that's where, because I think to different people, accountability can mean very, very different things. And it's one of those issues that gets really tricky very quickly. And, and like, you know, from a, from a first pass standpoint, like I agree, like, you know, the, the complete like hands off, like we're just a neutral platform has always been kind of a silly position for any of these mm -hmm. platforms to take. But, but so what does accountability look like? So I think it looks like um, more sophisticated moderation at this point. And I know that that's uh, possibly one of the areas where we disagree around how that should be done. But I think that the we can take a specific example. Um, tech platforms like YouTube have been told for years mm -hmm. that they have um, very, very serious problems with uh, terrorist recruitment on their platform, as sure. one example, right? Um, we, they've known for many, many years that they have serious kind of um, 
radicalization issues, uh, ways that they have that the kind of autoplay and the recommendation engine interface in unfortunate ways to push people down uh, into right. more and more and extreme there was content. Just a, a Zainab to, uh, Zainab's written about it. Um, she wrote about it with YouTube based on right. uh, Guillaume Tesla's research. Um, I've written about it with a Facebook recommendation engine for many mm -hmm. years now, um, talking about how Facebook is actively promoting groups and content in a way that's almost like a conspiracy correlation matrix. It takes people <laughs> who are interested in one conspiracy theory and it feeds them others. Right. And and the question is, um, you know, what what is the responsibility of the platform? What is the kind of how do we do we want to think about ethical design in that sense? Mm -hmm. If I type in Pizzagate and you show me Pizzagate, that's one thing. If I've never even been aware that Pizzagate exists and you voluntarily serve it up to me through a recommendation engine because it correlates with a fringe belief in chemtrails or flat earth or any number right. of other things, um, is that necessarily a is that a helpful decision? Is that is that enriching my life in some way, you know? <laughs> right. Or is that just keeping me on the platform for longer? Right. right. So what is the motivation behind doing that? What are the metrics and KPIs that the platform is prioritizing at this point? YouTube in particular, what are the is is time on site really the you know, that is the be all and end all for the business case of that platform and I understand that. But when we have crisis actor videos, which, I mean, they are not new. They're 10 years old at this right. point. It's only that we're starting to see the platforms begin to take a little bit of accountability in the form of recognizing that this needs to be moderated and that this is deeply destructive because public sentiment is shifting. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think that public sentiment and, you know, market forces, if you will, are kind of prevailing upon them to do things now that they were wholly unwilling to do 10 years ago. But because they were unwilling to think in these terms over the past three years even with the Obama administration sure. asking them to take this problem more seriously. Um, we've just allowed it to compound and compound and compound to the point where now we're unfortunately mired in a discussion about whether or not this is censorship uh, as opposed to thinking I think a little bit more in terms of um, what is the public space norms that we want to see implemented. Right. And, and I think that's that, that makes sense. Where, where I get concerns about this is like, you know, I mean, the, the sort of terrorism recruitment example is a really good one where, you know, that's one that, that was like one of the, really the first ones that, that, that YouTube got a lot of pressure over and going back almost a decade now, like Senator Lieberman actually raised that, you know, the, this whole concern about um, terrorist propaganda on YouTube and demanding that it be taken down. And so YouTube actually, like a decade ago, said, okay, okay, you know, like after a bunch of public pressure, just said, like, we're going to start taking down those videos. And of course, one of the first things that they took down was like a human rights group in Syria that was documenting war crimes. Right. And so the, the, the problem that I run to is like, it's, uh, you know, at, at one level, like, it seems obvious like we don't like we should be uncomfortable with terrorist propaganda and terrorist recruiting efforts on these platforms but at the same time when you get down to the reality it becomes fairly difficult fairly quickly to distinguish you know for example uh, terrorist propaganda versus documenting war crimes and mm -hmm. in fact they may be the exact same videos yeah. you know the the context may be different and it's you know it, it becomes you know without like you know the if, if someone had enough time to investigate all of that, and if, you know, YouTube had investigative reporting teams, which, like, maybe that is the solution, but, like, you know, that could to dig in and look at, you know, what is this being used for? How is it being used? What is the context? Who's uploading it? And things like that. You know, maybe I would agree to that, but I'm not sure how well that actually scales um, or how how rapidly that can actually be put in place in a, in a useful manner. Um, because, you know, if you need to investigate, is this, you know, ISIS propaganda or is this documenting war crimes? Um, you know, maybe that's an investigation that, so say you get to that point where you, you hire people, maybe that's an investigation that takes, you know, a few weeks or a month. And if we leave the video up for that long, is that going to be a problem? So th there are all sorts of questions that, that I think are, are raised where, like, you know, perfectly sensible idea let's remove terrorist propaganda, terrorist recruitment, runs into real-world difficulties very quickly. Absolutely. So I think there's, there's two, um, two things that I was thinking of as you said that. The first is the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism. So this is a self-regulatory body. Um, and, you know, body is a little bit of a stretch because I don't believe anyone <laughs> actually works there full-time. Okay. Um, but it's a self-regulatory effort that the platforms finally came to in mid 
2017. I believe it was established in June 2017. So per your point that we've been talking about this for a very long time, <laughs> the first steps we saw towards self-regulatory efforts to proactively share information between the platforms, not even with any permanent people, but just with database of hashes, basically. Hashes mm -hmm. is, is what, uh, you know, um, so that when a beheading video is uploaded to YouTube, Facebook knows, you know. Right, that you can recognize um, right, exactly. it across platforms. But, but that's how I would say, um, does each platform need to hire its own collection of dedicated moderators? I think that we've seen that uh, although they're somewhat resistant to information sharing in general, and these are competitive platforms, they're competitive because they're all competing for your attention, right, which is an interesting problem to be in. It's not necessarily the same product offering. Right. It's that the currency is attention. Right. Um, so you have a bunch of attention brokers that are largely trying to keep you on site. But what's interesting about GIFCT is there's at least a recognition then on the problem of terrorism, um, everybody taking the time to get there, particularly smaller platforms that don't necessarily have the budget to mm -hmm. hire 10,000 more humans. Right. Um, this is sort of a solution to that kind of problem. And one of the things that I've been trying to advocate for is that we do much like what the government did. The government had its own kind of, you know, um, countering violent extremism program that drew on a number of different agencies, recognizing that per what we learned from September 11th, information sharing is, of course, critical to uh, mm -hmm. to mitigating disasters. So similarly, in, uh, the government has expanded that, uh, the Global Engagement Center, it's called, to try to include countering Russian propaganda and being aware of manipulative information warfare efforts uh, by hostile state actors. This is the sort of thing where there's potential, if GIFCT has been established and the lawyers have done the work on this one narrow defined framing to potentially say, okay, what if we were to expand that a little bit mm -hmm. and do the same thing? Because as third-party researchers have seen, the content by Russia was all over the platforms. Yeah, sure. And the ways that we found it all over the platforms were by doing really basic things. Like once we had Jonathan Albright's CrowdTangle data set, we were able to search for specific unique keywords and phrases mm -hmm. and then go and take what we knew was reasonably authentic since it came from Facebook's own CrowdTangle platform and go and find that content around the rest of the internet. So this is a sort of thing where if there was better information sharing, the work that was done to investigate a lot of this has been done by independent third parties uh, who are unpaid, largely. Right. <laughs> Seems to be the, the way of moderating content <laughs> on, the, on the platforms is to push it out to unpaid volunteers, but that's uh, another story. Yes. <laughs> the other thing I would say, though, the other thing I was thinking of was um, the Heather Hayer story. So mm -hmm. if you recall, there was this um, terrible article written on the Daily Stormer, mm -hmm. and Facebook did a very interesting thing that I was actually surprised that they had the capability to do. Frankly, this was the first I'd, I'd seen it where they left up the shares of the Daily Stormer article that were critical of the article, that were expressing some kind of negative sentiment about it, mm -hmm. and they pulled down the pro shares. Hmm. Now, I don't really understand how that happened. Right. Um, it's, it's, this was how it was presented in the news. Um, I am very interested in the mechanism by which that took place, because that would indicate a relatively sophisticated or at least... Um, maybe you would argue unsophisticated, but a, a relatively, uh, a capability that they're working to develop recognizing that this framing that you're given, uh, is it a, is it being shared to call attention to an atrocity or is it being shared to right. recruit people to a terrorist cause? It, it indicates that there is potentially moving forward a capability to do that. Yeah, and that, I mean, and that's really interesting because, you know, one of the things that we've, we've brought up a bunch of times is like the number of examples of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube less so, but there are examples of this as well, where you know people getting strikes on their account or suspensions uh -huh. or whatever for reporting yeah. uh, negative information or you know them being attacked or, or, or horrible things happening to them or uh -huh. racist or you know whatever kind of speech directed at them. They then are using the platform, you know, to to you know to talk about that and, and empower themselves, and then they get. Oh, I've <laughs> seen this happen. Yeah, it. or they all... screenshot an image, and then the right. and then they get reported for trying to call attention to the yeah. problem. No, it's a it's a terrible situation. I think um, the reporting mechanisms. This was something I was just talking about with a couple of people at the platforms today. Are really tough. It's just a mm -hmm. wall. You have no idea if you know. Somebody, if, if you made it past the algorithmic review, right. <laughs> um, how do you convey context? You have that one, you right. can 
do a little sad face and re-report. <laughs> and I mean, God knows, I've I, you know, you you know my like past history with trying to right. get content taken down off Twitter. You know, pictures of my kids and stuff. And like, right. it's unclear to us that this is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've, I have I I know this frustration well. Um, I think that you know sometimes it becomes a matter of like there are. Do you remember um, Foursquare had the kind of super users yeah, um, sure. feature where there were people who were kind of like deputized almost, right. trusted? Um, this is another area where I'm you know, not necessarily arguing for unpaid workers to do more work. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it is an interesting model where you say maybe there's an opportunity. You know, when, when I see um, myself and others who have identified dubious accounts on Twitter. Umpire 43 comes to mind, the uh, account spreading disinformation during the Roy Moore mm -hmm. campaign. Um, question is like, who do we give that to? And a lot of times where, you know, there, there's no clear flag for you should investigate this as a potentially right. malicious or inauthentic uh, activity. And, you know, I imagine they don't want people mass reporting people for, you know, brigading and whatnot. But um, it would be potentially interesting to have some sort of mechanism for communicating back. Maybe they're the same way that they have partnerships for fact-checking, right. uh, thinking about content analysis, thinking about the other things, the voices, the dissemination, the indications. You know, we always look at, at misinformation campaigns. What is the content and the message? Um, right. Who are the actors pushing it? Do they look authentic? Uh, and then what is the, what are, are there interesting algorithmic indications that it is a coordinated or... Right. Um, something worth a second look, something worth, you know, bumping up to human reviewers. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if there's, you know, I mean, we talk about like sort of the content analysis, which seems to be where most of the focus is, but, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about is the context side of it. Absolutely. So I wonder if, you know, if, if there were more focus on sort of, you know, context analysis yeah. um, as opposed to content analysis, if well, they could do more. This is where I think, you know, you um, saw my tweets about the arbiters of truth thing. I think mm -hmm. that's such a cop-out, and I think it's a cop-out because I think it's actually the complete wrong question. It's the absolute wrong framing. It's just one that, that um, resonates with people because they think, oh, you're right, I definitely don't want them to be the arbiters of truth. Mm -hmm. I try to go back to, like, why don't you be the arbiters of integrity? Not integrity <laughs> in the, like, I am a person of integrity sense, but more just in the, like, is this account real? You know, this uh -huh. was something that we heard during the hearings, actually, was... Um, the Texas Secessionist page, uh, so it's, a, it's a remarkably nuanced argument because you're saying, like, you as a Texan who is a secessionist absolutely have a right to have a Texas Secessionist page sure. under the First Amendment. You yep. know, the platforms, of course, you know, we have, can have that conversation. Right. They have the First Amendment to moderate or not as they right. choose. But um, let's assume for the moment that you have a perfectly legitimate political position and this is your thing. What Facebook's lawyers said was um, these were violations of terms of service because they were inauthentic recognizing that it was actually the voices and the fact that it was uh, created by sock puppets and people who did not exist right. to artificially amplify and engage and inflame uh, a group of people who do hold this particular view or belief. So that is not to say that they don't have the right to hold the viewer belief. It's not to say that they don't have the right to have the viewer belief on the platform. But Facebook's justification for the takedowns is this is inauthentic content. Right. It, uh, the, the narrative is not the violation here. The uh, dissemination patterns and the individuals who are doing the dissemination uh, Russian Texas secessionists are inauthentic. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and it's a fascinating conversation because, you know, you try to get into it with them and you're like, so if I'm a New York person running a Texas secessionist page, am right. I authentic? You know, where where is your view of, right. of authenticity? And I think that it is important to recognize that some people are uh, fall under the more false positives or better than false negatives, right? And, right. and how do we... Where is that balance? And right. I think that's a... Um... And that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's where, where my concern comes in is that, you know, I think, like, people will always point to sort of the, the like, black and white cases that feel sort of obvious, like, you know, this must be, you know, this is clearly ridiculous, bad behavior. But, like, you know, I think the reality is, like, you know, it's a very small sliver of content that is that the clear black and white yep. sort of situation. And there's a very, very large segment of, you know, gray in between and sort of figuring out how do you, you know, how are you able to actually manage that? And, and again, taking into account context, because like, you know, going back to the example you gave before where like, you know, Facebook would leave off the people who are criticizing an article. Like that's really interesting to me because that's yeah. like, you know, you would think like 
there's value in that, right? There's value in lots of people calling out, like allowing the community to sort of debunk a ridiculous situation. Mm -hmm. um, that's good, right? We, yeah. we should want that. And so, you know, figuring out ways to distinguish those kinds of things at scale um, is potentially really interesting, though I'm not entirely sure how to make it work. I think there's, you know, there's some research that's still not quite solidified yet. Um, Brendan Nyhan's backfire effect, right? This mm -hmm. was sort of, um, I believe he said recently that it was uh, not quite misreported, but some of the nuance was lost in the conversation. The, yeah, the whether was, debunking works, yeah, to what extent was, we should have people criticize. Uh, it, it, an interesting study, but I think yeah. Yeah, a lot of the interpretation really sort of blew it out of proportion. And now, yeah. you know, it, it was funny because you know there's there's an element of it sort of like you know, discussing sort of like fake news, and then it sort of became fake news, and right. the way that people were discussing it itself. Um, and now they've tried to to reassert like what this is really about. But it, it, I mean. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a lot of nuance there. I think, unfortunately, the conversation turned to, you know, fake news became politicized. It, right. it rapidly turned into anything I don't like or anything on right. a news outlet that I don't like. And um, I don't think that's where we want to go either. I, I absolutely agree that, that um, you know, this is not... I, I really always kept trying to come back to, like, this is not a partisan issue. Yeah. So... Um, and, and, like, I mean, this is something I've been meaning to even to write about is, like, People forget, like, you know, right after the election, and again, you know, this goes beyond just the election issue, but like right after the election, we had all these people who were upset reasonably about the results of the election saying like, well, fake news was a problem and there were all these, these stories and, you know, like there were some of us who were like, be careful about using that, the term fake news because, yeah. you know, now if you talk about fake news, it's only a year and a half later and everyone's like associates it with you know, the president and, and what he calls any bit of news that he doesn't like or any, like, you know, error in reporting, which is natural. I mean, not good, but, you know, reporters make mistakes and then suddenly, like, they're using that to, to completely delegitimize anything. Um, and so, you know, I worry about, you know, again, it, it's, it's one of those issues where, you know, it's very easy for people to take a very nuanced situation and turn it into this very black or white issue, um, which leads to really bad results. And I think some of the, um, some of the work, you know, I, I tried to write about this um, in regards to the distinction between propaganda, disinformation, and misinformation, mm -hmm. and hoaxes, you know, and how do we sure. use those terms and how they are not interchangeable, because it gets to uh, what we were describing before, the notion of intent. Is yep. there an intent to harm? Is there an intent to mislead? Is there uh, integrity even in the mistake, right? Misinformation. Yep. My grandma forwarding a chain letter, you know, <laughs> right. not intended to be harmful, right. um, versus Russian Texas secessionists. Totally. You know, so this is where I think um, having that, that sense of, of nuance in how we think about the solution space is important. I think in how journalists write about the stories is important. I think, um, you know, Claire Wardle at uh, First Draft, they put out, um, you know, kind of a comprehensive guide intended to be received by journalists to recognize that this was going to be a topic to cover uh, going forward and how do we think about that sort of, um, how do we think about providing reporters with nuanced vocabulary so that the conversation moves along in a in a productive way, as opposed to being able to be easily yeah. dismissed. And you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about, I, I think you made a really important point there, which is that sort of the intent of whoever's sort of pushing the information, and you know, which is is really important and is something that we don't often talk about, but I think is important, but is also oftentimes very difficult to to actually determine. And so I think about. Uh, you know, a different context, and I've been thinking about this a lot, and I've spoken about it on the podcast before in another context as well. You know, when you think about intent, oftentimes that's an issue in like criminal cases, right? And you have like, there's a whole due process, you know, uh, scenario that you go through in order to determine intent. And so I almost wonder, and, and I don't know if this is practical and it may not be practical at all, but like, is there a way to do that same sort of thing where if you have content that is, um, that we believe is, is being posted with malicious intent of some sort or some nature, if there is sort of like, you know, a trial process that, that you can go 
through and you know maybe that takes too long maybe that's too costly maybe that's too problematic for a whole variety of other reasons i mean you know the russian trolls are not going to show up to defend them but maybe that's ok no no they did it if you if you read some of the gosh i wish her could remember which publication it was in but there was like a fascinating little tidbit in which the russian trolls i think it was in the russian account there was a russian paper and i am completely blanking on the name of it but i can track it down for you that did an investigation into the troll farm and and one of the people who worked there actually says facebook shut us down a couple times and we reapplied for our accounts and they said but you're trolls but then occasionally they would get back their accounts it was this fascinating snippet that i think was actually under investigated just this idea of when were those accounts shut down and who it you know facebook security and like did that conversation really happen or is this just uh you know a more you know narrative being fed to the press right you know but these are i was like wow that's a a fascinating little tidbit there (laughs) yeah well and and then it gets back to the other issue which you raised at the beginning and we didn't really explore that much either is is like the issue of transparency right so like all this happens behind closed doors right and and sometimes for very good reasons and 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 but but it's another area where i wonder like again if i compare to the judicial system and like to be very clear like the judicial judicial system is Mm-hmm. Very imperfect, and there are all sorts of problems with it. And I'm not suggesting that we recreate like a secondary <laughs> judicial system, but there are certain things that you know we have centuries of of history to look at, and things that work well in terms of like due process and transparency, and having these processes being very open, and you know the ability to appeal decisions and things like that. And and I wonder if there are lessons that can be taken from there, because right now we not only have a, a private judicial system determining these things but a secretive private judicial system. Yeah, I think, um, so on the, the transparency piece I think is tied into sort of what I would say is like the, the third pillar of uh-huh. you know transparency, accountability, and then governance. Sure. And the governance piece is missing. And sometimes when you say governance, people think you're you know arguing for um, the government right. to come in and regulate, which is of course you know an, an option on the table that often does spur proactive steps by the companies, the threat of regulation sometimes is enough. Uh, There's self-regulation, which like we've seen with global internet forum to counterterrorism, which gets us partway there. But Mm -hmm. ultimately, if there's no third party oversight, um, there's nobody, like transparency, but to whom? Who are you giving the data to? Who are you sharing it with? What is the, you know, who is the third party auditor that's looking at this stuff? And right now, that doesn't exist. I think that's a little bit remarkable given some of the parallels that I've seen. You know, my I always go back to quant finance, which is what I used to do before I came mm-hmm. up to Silicon Valley, and the idea that when high-frequency trading came to the financial markets, we saw a number of unfortunate algorithms um, enter into the space. And I was a high-frequency trader. I was an mm-hmm. automated market maker. We didn't call ourselves HFTs because we in finance saw a subtle distinction there that reporters did not have that, that nuanced right. view of, perhaps. Um, but you know, my recollection of things is like the SEC and FINRA are like right there. They are not going to allow market integrity to you know just kind of go off and uh, because the integrity of the system as a whole is at stake. And that's sure. where I see kind of a gap here and a parallel in that the current places where we have these sorts of states of discourse, the idea that things like democracy, you know, an informed citizenry is critical to a to a well functioning democracy the ways that we engage with each other in the trust problem. Um, this is sort of an information system and information integrity is suffering. And there is nobody, we can ask for transparency, but then ultimately who is doing the looking? And the sure. answer is nobody. And right now nobody is in charge. And this is another thing that's a little bit perplexing. Like the system as a whole has flaws, but there's nobody tasked with looking at it at any kind of systemic level. The government is, you know, in my opinion, incapable of uh, of, of doing this to a, you know, yeah. of doing this justice anyway. So yeah, no, I, I and and so I mean, but that you know, I mean, I guess when I think of transparency, at least I think of of you know just more information available publicly, right? Mm-hmm. And, and allowing you know, so so not necessarily having it be government oversight, but just you know, public oversight. Though again, you know, that gets back to the issue of you know, basically then you're left with sort of you know. Uh, motivated volunteers to, to, you know, but but you know also journalists and 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 others who have, you know, good reasons to to sort of monitor uh, and and 
you know, look deeply into the decisions that are being made. Um, and so I think there, there are some interesting things there. I, I am, get very nervous about the idea of like there being sort of like an official oversight board of whatever nature, whether it's, you know, private or government, just because historically I don't think those work so well. You know, I think the, the finance high-frequency trading example is an interesting one, but it's, that's, you know, the, the sort of set of information that and, and set of activities that that is designed to regulate is is much more narrowly focused and I think it becomes much more difficult to apply that same sort of setup to you know social media or the internet or, or, or communication on the internet as a whole um, which which gets at another issue that I that I worry about with a lot of these discussions which is most people are talking about you know, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, those are the big ones. Um, but there are a whole bunch of other platforms and you have sort of, you know, mid, mid-sized ones or, you know, slightly smaller than those big ones. You have, you know, how does Wikipedia manage its platform? How does Reddit manage its platform? You know, and then you have other ones like Pinterest and, you know, Medium and you can get sort of smaller and smaller or down to like, you know, I have a platform. I mean, TechDirt is a is a small blog, but we allow comments, right? And mm-hmm. it's like, how do we manage our comments? And and if we're talking about sort of solutions that, you know, in in one way or another become mandated, um, obviously, like the idea of like having everybody hire ten thousand people to review everything is you know gets impossible mm-hmm. beyond the, those the top three realistically. Um, but like even some of the other solutions would have negative impact on. Many of the the smaller platforms, definitely the medium platforms, in in many many cases, and in fact, can create this world where you effectively lock in those larger platforms because they're the only ones who can actually deal with this, and you'll never even get any new entrants because who wants to take on, you know, that burden at at a startup level? So I think yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I think there's a unique opportunity where medium platforms can actually lead to to some extent in terms of, um, you know, the alternative to regulation is uh, market pressure and norms, sure. right? And Absolutely. so, I don't. I have not ever advocated for each platform to be, you know, issued an edict from on high that they are going to moderate in a certain way. Or, right. you know, I, I think that um, notions of anonymity and pseudonymity are largely decided by each platform independently. And and I think that's how it should be. I think that you should know the culture of a place that you go and you voluntarily choose to go there. And that's right. uh, and that's and that's um, you know per uh, and that's that's the beauty of the system we have, right? Um, how how do you moderate? What's your what's your thought process for for, for your comments? Day. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so we do it. A little, I think a little differently than other people, and I've spoken about this a couple times before in a couple different areas. But like one of the things we have actually a very permissive and very open. Um, we don't require registration. We'll let anyone comment. Um, just you know, you can mm-hmm. not even put in the name and. Um, but what we do is we actually we try to encourage good behavior. Um, we have um, so we have the voting mechanism, but it's unlike, as far as I can tell, any other site. Where most sites have like up or down voting, mm-hmm. um, where we have we have three buttons for the voting, which is um, insightful, funny, or then report. Hmm. Okay. Um, and the idea being, we would like insightful comments and we would like funny comments, and therefore. If we are putting that on each comment and throughout the comment system, you see that those buttons are there, that encourages that kind of behavior. The reporting behavior um, is designed so that um, uh, we, we, we will uh, very, very rarely, almost never, remove a comment from the site. Um, you know, if it's blatant, pure spam um, or, you know, directly threatening or, or dangerous, those are cases where we may remove it. But otherwise, if if um, a comment is reported to a certain level, to a certain threshold, then that comment gets minimized. And people can still read it, they have to click to expand it, and it makes it clear like this comment has been reported and so they can expand it. And we've actually found that, and obviously we're a much smaller community, like that, those few things that we've done has made the community actually really good. We have trolls, like we absolutely have <laughs> trolls, and, and they're they're like an active part of the community. But 
um, and, and they can be completely frustrating and annoying, <laughs> which I totally get. But like, they also tend to actually generate really interesting discussions because immediately the rest of the community kind of jumps in and like bashes them, like you know, but in, in thoughtful ways and like just walks through like you're wrong, you're you know being a jerk, and like you know you didn't you know in some cases you obviously didn't read this part of it, but like then you get all this really useful information that comes out of it, and which is is kind of cool. Um, and so, you know, so that's an example where we sort of, you know, com completely independently of what everybody else has done, we've sort of developed this system, which works for us. Yeah. But that's, you know, getting to your point of like each platform sort of makes their own decisions about how they want to do it. And, you know, I don't think our system would work for a lot of other platforms, but for our community it does. I think um, having a proactive, thoughtful approach to it is, of course, step one. I think sure. that there was like, you know, look at Twitter five years ago versus Twitter now, right? The right. laissez-faire, let anything go. And look at what that did to to the, to the experience. Look at how many people, I mean, I turned off notifications at some point. I was like, you know, who needs this? I can. <laughs> right. I don't care if somebody adds me on Twitter at this point. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, but then it was, then, you know, you get the blue check and then all of a sudden you realize that like regular people are seeing all of this crap and then people with blue checks aren't. And it took right. a while for them to roll that out. And I see this also with things like the way that they treat free speech and, uh, you know, to stay, um, stay on top of, uh, uh, in, in compliance with laws in Germany and elsewhere around mm -hmm. hate speech and things. Um, and then you see people kind of trying to hack that system by changing their location just so that they have the <laughs> right. option to, like, you know, flip the bit that, that you know, that, right. that gets rid of that stuff. And that's because, you know, there is the other, the other piece to this, which is, like, you... Uh, you may have a right to speak, but you're not owed an audience. You're not entitled totally. to an audience. You're not entitled to amplification, and that's where I feel like a lot of the conversation, when we let it get shifted into, um, you know, moderation is not censorship. When we let it get shifted into a conversation about censorship, then we're, uh, I, I think, that's absolutely the wrong, the wrong frame. This, sure. this idea that um, your right to free speech includes your right to, you know, reach millions of people. But I, I would go back to um, something that you said made me. Uh, you're, you're um, comment uh, insightful, funny mm -hmm. voting mechanism actually made me think of Amazon mm -hmm. and the ways that you can rank reviews and how they try to prioritize that. Um, and actually, the fascinating mass manipulation campaigns that are run to game that system. Yeah. And this is because the reality is um, the difference between smaller platforms and bigger platforms is the stakes are higher because the audience is Absolutely higher. Absolutely true. Yeah. And the uh, impact is higher. And so on Amazon, there's the economic impact. And on Facebook and Twitter, there's the influence impact. And right. so that's where I think that when you have that great audience and those high stakes, you do have great responsibility. And so that's where I would say... Yeah, um, I think that's fair. I mean, I think, you know, for a lot of those platforms, though, they, they recognize that. I mean, I mean, yeah. Amazon is, you know, they're, they're pretty proactive. And, like, Yelp also, I mean, they've, they've gone after and sued people for, for posting fake reviews. Yeah, I think they like absolutely that. should. I mean... And, yeah, and so... Um, because it gets down to integrity. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, <laughs> because it, their businesses can't function if they're plagued by inauthentic comments that people don't believe. That's their entire business. Right. And this is where I think that for Facebook, their business is not integrity. Their business is uh, attention. People right. don't go to Amazon for sustained... I'm sorry, to... Well, I mean, I spend a lot of time on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. I spend a ton of time on Amazon. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I don't think that's common behavior um i don't and, and they're not they're, right. they're, they're for other <laughs> they're reasons. there for a different reason right, right, right. Yeah. right um i'm i'm actually fascinated by ideologues who aim to manipulate amazon reviews because they wind up ranking higher in google search results and things like yeah. this is a systemic problem and, and the big you know the kind of behemoths do bear a disproportionate degree of responsibility for uh for thinking about how cross-platform manipulation campaigns uh at this point are, are touching all of them and, and yeah. this is where I, I am actually surprised that um, systemic solutions haven't really been proactively advanced. Yeah, no, that, that would be interesting to see if like, yeah, I mean if there was some way that, that, that companies would team up, but then of course you have all sorts of questions about collusion. Mm -hmm. and Collusion, like, privacy, you know, yeah. When, yeah, and you know we already see like you know, Twitter and YouTube are both being sued now for supposedly discriminating against conservatives. That that, that right, and then I think stuff. Google is too. Yeah. And simultaneously for discriminating against right. liberals for, in <laughs> both directions. You know, it is. It's you know, it's. I mean, this is where the I remember reading. Um, I had an interesting discussion with somebody recently about uh, deep fakes. Uh -huh. um, 
and the idea that the laws, you know, the laws exist to protect us from deep fakes. And I, and, and I, I think that some of this goes back to the principle of like who is best positioned to remediate the harms caused by a lot of this. And ultimately, in my opinion, that is the platforms. Right. right. And yeah, yeah. And I don't disagree with that. And I think, you know, for the most part, they are where I, I like where that discussion gets me nervous is that when you say that they're sort of in the best position to, that often then is followed by, therefore, you know, government should step in and force them to do X, Y, or Z. And, you know, again, this gets to sort of the nuance of the discussion, and I don't think you're specifically advocating for that. You're saying that they should just take responsibility. Um, I, you know, and, and I would argue to some extent, like, if you talk to the people at these platforms, they are recognizing that this is an issue and they're struggling with how to deal with it because they see how big that the area of gray is and how difficult it is to make those decisions. Um, and I think that many of them really do care about those things and it's, it's for, for a variety of reasons they've had trouble expressing that to the public. Some are mistakes of their own making. Um, well, I think this also gets to, um, you know, Senator Warner was at mm -hmm. South By, um, last weekend and, mm -hmm. and did say um, we there is a sense and, and I, I believe Senator Wyden actually who wrote CDA 230 right. echoed this recently we've waited for you long enough yeah what are you going to do and so the fact that we had to haul them in front of Congress to get that information out of them to really have a full accounting and it wasn't even necessarily a full accounting in the case of some of the companies right. um, to, to get even any kind of public accounting for what had happened on their platform um, it's it's disappointing that it took um, congressional hearings and the threat of regulation for them to take responsibility yeah. for largely being negligent uh, over the prior some odd number of years, despite repeated warnings from third-party researchers, from government, the Obama administration, et cetera. Right. So that's where I think we get to the point where it would be nice if this was all done proactively out of the kindness of their hearts, but um, the... The, the regulatory argument is interesting in, in part because we have a situation where there is um, kind of public harm and private profit, and traditionally that's when regulators would step in. Sure. Um, I am not a regulatory expert. I've seen people advance uh, regulatory suggestions ranging from anti-monopolistic, um, you know, antitrust type solutions mm -hmm. to conversations we've had about CDA 230. Right. Um, I don't think that the that it's necessarily fully fleshed out, but I think that there's a sense that because of this malfeasance, mm -hmm. uh, it's coming, and so yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, and it definitely is, and and you know we've had that discussion a, a bunch um, on the podcast and 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 all all over the place. You know, and part of my concern is like you know as as you and I discussed, like I mean, CDA two thirty is actually designed to allow the platforms to proactively moderate like that is the, yes, the point of it and but that's that's probably like the the norm isn't in place that right. makes them want to do it and, and i don't and i'd love to hear you tell yeah. me how you're going to shift that <laughs> well i think you know I, th I think there's a few things and i i think that that um part of it and this is a separate discussion but like you know there was the recent wired article where they kind of like went through like the last two years of yeah. sort of facebook's reckoning mm -hmm. and you know i had written this article about it which said like that article gets the, the 230 argument wrong. Like twice they repeat in there that, you know, because of 230, Facebook felt like they couldn't moderate the platform because they were afraid they would be declared, you know, liable for it, which is the exact opposite of, yeah. of 230. But, you know, what I've sort of found out is like that's actually like people at Facebook believed that that was what 230 said, which is directly incorrect and, and, and made them do the wrong thing. And so we're in this weird position now where 230 is, is being this, you know, changed and we're sort of taking away some of that because all these companies misinterpreted it. But we're, we're changing 230 not in a way that will actually encourage better moderation. We're, we're changing in a way that will actually give them incentives to stop looking altogether. I mean, and particularly, and we've had podcasts on this about SESTA, which is specifically about sex trafficking. Um, and so I fear, like, it's the exact fear that I have, which is like, you know, there's a problem, 
regulators want to regulate, the regulation that they're putting in place it will actually set up the exact opposite incentives of what it should. It's true that companies misinterpreted 230, misread 230, whatever it was, and therefore did really stupid things, which was basically stick their head in the sand. And that was a, a mistake, and, and they should have thought more about that, or they should have had better policy people and lawyers. Uh, I have no idea if any of them are listening <laughs> to this, but you guys messed up. Uh, so, like... I don't know. To me, the, the whole situation is kind of, it's, it's, it's a mess, and I have, I'm afraid of making it much worse in trying to correct the original mess, right? And so that's, that's where I get really nervous about this, because every solution that I've seen so far, I think, the, the, on the regulatory side, I think makes the problem worse. And, and, and that scares me, because I also know, like, once those regulatory decisions are made, you know, getting away from them is mm -hmm. next to impossible, or at least for a very long time. And so we could do a lot of damage, and a lot of damage to a lot of people and to a lot of innovation that, you know, could actually help deal with some of these problems by regulating it in the way that people are talking about regulating it. So what would you do then? What would you do on a regulatory standpoint then? I would reinforce 230, but educate... Let, you know, make it much clearer, which I think hopefully the platforms are actually finally recognizing that like, you know, 230 gives you a protection to experiment and to do a variety of different things and to encourage these platforms to experiment and figure out what makes the most sense. And I think, you know, I can't think of a platform anymore that does no moderation because, right. you know, that that's, you can't get away with that anymore you, for, for good reason because you just get filled up with spam, right? Um, and so, you know, I think the incentives are now in place for moderation. And so now it's just a, a question of figuring out, like, how do we moderate in a way that is effective? And the way to figure that out is to allow the platforms to experiment and to do different things. And we can, you know, like more transparency is good, you know, more, you know, being willing to talk about what they're doing, more, you know, willing to share with researchers and journalists. I think all of that would be really, really important. But allowing them to experiment is also super important. And I'm afraid that almost every regulatory solution we see does the opposite and actually limits the options for, for experimenting. Well, I think they've had a lot of opportunity to experiment. And so this is where I would say that they've not done anything. Or, you know, I'm trying to be right? terrible. I mean, they've they've, they've done stuff. Some, and, some and, stuff. And, and maybe not stuff. well. <laughs> I mean, you know. Uh, so, I mean, the people at a lot of these platforms would disagree, right? And, and so I, I, think, I, I think they would argue that they've done a lot of stuff. You would argue that they've done very little. I would argue that they've done some in the middle and they haven't done a very good job of it, right? So different, different perspectives on it. But, you know, but I think part of the issue, too, is like the scale of these issues. We've been talking about the nuance of these issues. But the scale of these issues for the larger platforms in particular is is almost incomprehensible, right? Yeah, so I would say, using YouTube as an example, because okay. that one's top of mind for me since the, the Wikipedia um, thing sure. happened. I think um, YouTube actually was um, delivered a experimental solution called Project Redirect by mm -hmm. Jigsaw, another entity within Google. Um, alphabet. <laughs> or, sorry, with an alphabet, you're right. <laughs> um, that happened, I think it was a little, maybe two years ago, a year and a half ago. Um, that happened because this was known within Google, right? Mm -hmm. This was, or alphabet, whatever it was. I think it was still Google back when this was happening, then, but you yes. know what I mean. Um, so this is an example of, you know, for some reason, nobody is talking about that now. We're talking about, um, oh gosh, they just pointed the finger at Wikimedia and a $6.7 billion company is explore whatever. I don't know if that's Alphabet or, or, <laughs> or the YouTube division. It's also hard to, to tell these days. Um, is asking a volunteer team to moderate for them, and they didn't even give them the heads up that that was going to happen, right? Um, I look at that, and that, that just feels like a passing of the buck and mm -hmm. a ill thought through plan that wasn't even discussed with the ostensible partner and a 
terrible media rollout and PR yeah, and, and just really, so really quickly for, yeah. for, for people who, just in case oh, people ahead. didn't yeah. catch that news, which is that YouTube announced that basically on like controversial videos, they will link to Wikipedia to provide fact checking for it, which is not quite what Wikipedia is designed to do. And they didn't alert Wikipedia and they certainly didn't give any money to Wikipedia. And they're just kind of expecting the volunteers of Wikipedia to, to step up. And of course, that puts a huge target on all the, the Wikipedia content for the same trolls that have created all these other problems in the first place and et cetera. But sorry, just yeah, wanted so to I, So I would say the, I, I am not disputing that there are exceptional people within the companies who care deeply about this. Right. Um, I believe that you know Facebook in particular has hired people for integrity teams for every single feature on its platform. Right. I think that some of the rollback away from surfacing content on pages is while they sort out what they're going to do about pages. Similarly, trending, you know, trending mm -hmm. topics is another area. I think Twitter just put out its RFP for um, people to think about how to talk about public discourse. Right. I'm not saying that they're not doing uh, anything. I'm saying that we have an election coming up. And we have had multiple elections. Italy just sure. had an election. Um, I believe Mexico's got an election. U.S. has 435, you know, or so <laughs> elections right. coming up in six months, right? And then, do you feel that we are in a markedly different position now than we were in 2016? And that's where I, I think about it in terms of what are the um, what are we defending against here? Recognizing that it's not purely just theoretical in terms of there's sure. information integrity, then there's something like election integrity, which has like a, uh, you know, there are going to be campaigns fought, there are going to be narratives pushed. Do you believe that the changes that the platforms have made have made a material impact that is going to, that makes you feel confident that election 2018 is not going to be uh, <laughs> an unmitigated show. disaster? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I mean, I would say I'm probably not confident that that that, that changes happen. But but part of that is, I'm I'm not confident that any solution would solve that problem, right? And so, um, which I think is is is, is a whole other <laughs> issue. And we've already gone longer than than we normally go on this podcast. So I'm not going to go down the road. But but no, I think that is a valid point. My concern is like. You know, it's one thing to say there is still a problem, and it's another to, to, you know, my concern put simply is that every solution that I see, I fear creates even bigger problems somewhere else, right? And so I don't deny that where we are today is not great, and and I would love it for there to be better solutions to to all these issues and disinformation and 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 you know election interference and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I fear that that almost every solution, and, and th this is not directed at you because you're you, you know, I don't I don't see you in this camp. I think you're having you know th this exact kind of important discussion on it. But like a lot of the a lot of people are sort of pushing like, well, this has to happen. This has to happen, and I don't think any of those solutions will work. And in fact, often will make the problem even worse. And and especially when we're talking about the sort of political class. The idea of like, well, we're just going to legislate this, and then you know, we're never going to look at that issue ever again. Like we've solved it, um, when when it may make the problem worse, is something of a of a concern. And so that's why I would, you know, I would like to see certainly more experimentation and more being done by the platforms. But they had to figure it out too, right? I mean, in terms of like election interference, they realistically have a sample size of one, right? And and. You know, and we wouldn't even be talking about most of this if the election had gone the other way, even though the same things would have happened, frankly, right? Which is which is an issue. And so, you know, yes, it would be great if they could figure it out and be perfect and not allow for misinformation for the next election, like for a whole variety of reasons, including, you know, concepts of democracy and human survival. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but at the same time, like the idea that anyone has the solution that was going to fix it in time for the 2018 election, in time for the 2020 election, is kind of a pipe dream, too. Oh, on the regulatory front, absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, no, I, I believe in being a realist about this, and, and there's no possible way any regulation, good or bad, is happening before sure. 2018, uh, 2020 even, probably. Um, which is why I would think, um, 
the two sort of immediate short-term things that I would want to see done are improve the research relationship with third-party researchers and improve information sharing, turn something like GIFCT into a real thing with mm -hmm. actual real people who are responsible for working on it, you know, right. <laughs> more than a database of hashes, um, and get that, uh, you know, get get those two things going, just as sort of short-term things that we can do within the tech community. I think a lot yep. of this is actually one thing that I know we're um, short on time, but another thing we haven't even talked about is the idea that you know, kind of tech employees, tech workers, tech businesses that are not the big five can lead here and can say, totally. this is where you know we as engineers think that we recognize the deep harms of the recommender system. We recognize the deep harms of how trending topics are, how easily they are gamed, right? These are the sorts of things where these conversations rarely make it public. And, and, yeah. and per your point, would we have had this conversation if, uh, if the election had gone the other way? I have to say, I think, you know, I voted for Hillary, but um, my first thought when he won was the silver lining here <laughs> is going to be that there is going to be a shitstorm over this. <laughs> because I was on Twitter on election night watching the returns roll in and then watching the Twitter employees, right. an ex-Twitter employees say, oh my God, what did we do? Right, right, right. And that, I guess that would be my like, you know, final thought here. <laughs> No, I, I think that's good, and I think we've, we've sort of come to a point of, of where we agree. I mean, I think they should, you know, more transparency, more work with researchers, you know, more willingness to discuss this openly. I think we're starting to see that, you know, uh, you know, w we had a series of posts that was associated with this conference that recently happened at Santa Clara, where companies actually were, you know, in order to participate in that conference, they had to show up and reveal some stuff about how they moderate their platforms, and so, and we're seeing like. It, it, it still feels a little fake, but like the way that Twitter and Facebook, especially, have now started to to sort of publicly bare their souls a mm -hmm. little bit, uh, you know, really in the last few months, that's the beginning of a, of, of an important discussion. It would be nice if if there had been more recognition and more realization and more openness earlier. Um, but I think we're moving in that direction. So, I, but you know, I think in terms of uh, where we hope this will go, we're we're actually pretty much in. in Pretty strong agreement. So. I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, uh, thank you so much. Uh, this is a really interesting conversation and a very interesting topic. We could probably go on for another few hours, uh, but uh, thanks for 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 uh, engaging on this. And yeah, thank you for discussion. having me. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week.